Uh, one of the things that we've done at the beginning of the year here at Rio for the last couple of years that I think that God sort of led us to and is really blessed in this church community uh, is he has caused us to come up with a theme or a big idea for the year. And the great big transformational idea for this year that I'm hoping will take hold of us, will capture us, will mold us, will shape us, and will make us ultimately more like Jesus at the end of the year than we are today, which, by the way, is really the goal, is simply that life is mission. That's it. That's the whole thing. Life is mission. And I know that as soon as I say that, some of you are thinking, okay, well, it's short. You know, it's easy to remember. I can put it on a three by five card. I can put it on the bathroom mirror, but I have no idea what it means. Tom, when you say that life is mission, what do you mean by life? And what do you mean by mission? Because is, I understand you don't have to explain is. So let me explain it to you. When I say that life is mission, what I mean by life, first of all, is the eternal life that is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I'm talking about your salvation experience. I'm talking about that moment in your life where, as we just sang, your soul awakened by the Spirit. And suddenly you realized all kinds of things. One of the things you realized, and it was a little traumatic if you haven't had this experience, you realize that, you know what, I've done and said some things, I'm doing and saying some things, and despite my best efforts, at least in my own strength for sure, I'm going to do and say some things that might not offend my friends, might not be offensive in our culture, might not be a real big deal in our world, but are really offensive to a perfectly holy and righteous God. And here's the problem. I can't go back and undo and unsay them. I can't pull like the book of my life, the ever-expanding book, you know, of my life off the shelf and get out a great big thing of like magical white out and then just start flipping through the pages. You know, oh yeah, I remember when I said that to my mom. Pretty sure that was not in accord with honor thy mother and father, you know. So we'll wipe that out. Oh, and then I told this lie and then this lie and then this lie. And then, I mean, like how much white out would I need just for that? Then, of course, you get to your college years. And you're looking for the shredder, man. It's like, I don't want God to see any of this. Any of it. I can't undo it. I can't unsay it. And at some point, he awakens you to that reality. But but at the same time, he comes rushing to your aid, you know, in the midst of your distress. And he says, but there is a solution. It's Jesus who comes to you as God made man with his infinitely valuable, infinitely perfect life. And he says, you know what? Here's the deal. I'll give you my perfect life. I'll take your sinful life. And my death, burial, and resurrection will be the full payment for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. So when I say that life is mission, first of all, when I talk about life, I mean that. But then secondly, and this is important too, I'm talking about the life that you and I are living every single moment of every single day. I'm talking about the life that we are all even now gathered in this room, alive and living. And I need for you to understand at the beginning of this conversation, and so much of the Christian life is right here. I need for you to understand that those two kinds of life are not disconnected. They are intimately, passionately, fully connected and integrated. And we need to begin to live that way. In other words, your I'm saved and going to heaven life is not an insurance policy that you put in a file and then you put in a box and then you put the box up on a corner shelf way back in your closet, you know, and there it sits collecting dust while you're out here living your every single moment of every single day life until you die and then you need it. And it's like, oh, God, hang on a second because I've got that covered. I got this insurance policy named Jesus. Let me just get it off the box, you know, and you blow off the dust and here. It doesn't work that way. 
If you belong to Jesus, don't miss this, then you belong to Jesus. And in that transaction where you exchanged lives, guess what else he got from you? He got you from you. He got every single moment of your everyday life. And that is a glorious thing because he knows better than you do and than I do what you ought to do with it. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning of verse 20, or really just in verse 20. And I've read this in the past, but you know what I find? I find that one of the things that, that's true about the Christian faith is that most of what we need to know we've already heard. We just need to hear it again and then again and then again and then again in different times and seasons of our lives. And it strikes us differently as the Spirit takes it and applies it yet again to our heart. That's why you can't read through the Bible once and go, man, I read the whole thing. I mean, what else is there? You know, it's life. It's life. Paul uses the language of purchase and ownership. Listen to what he says. He says, for you were bought with a price. Now, where were you bought with a price? At the cross. By whom were you bought? Slightly tricky question. By God the Father. And what did he pay for you? And I ask you that as an aside because life tends to devalue us. Maybe you've been devalued by your parents, you know? Have you experienced that? They've communicated to you that you're a failure, that you're never going to amount to anything, that you're really kind of a pain, that life would have been a whole lot easier if you hadn't been along. And by the way, you were even a mistake. And in some of their more frustrated moments, they've said some really damaging things. Damaging to what? You. And the value that you assign to you. You go off to school. Middle school is a real joy, isn't it? It's glorious. Aren't you so glad you don't have to go back? Everybody's demonically possessed, including you. Everybody. It devalues you as it's communicated to you through your classmates that either you make it or you don't make it. So which was it? Then there are boyfriends or girlfriends, you know. Then there are husbands and wives. And sometimes you get traded in on a newer model. A better, or so they said, model. It's painful. It's devaluing. But there is a right and true appraiser in this universe. There is someone who knows your value infallibly. And here's what he's paid for you. The infinitely valuable life of his infinitely perfect son. That ought to make you puff your chest out a little bit. That ought to make you reconsider the value of you. So Paul says, for you were bought, you were purchased, you're owned, sorry, by the Lord God. And that's a glorious thing. And then he says, so here's the deal. Here's the consequence. Here's the response. Go out and glorify sex with your body. Knock yourself out. That's it. All right, that's not it. Okay, let's try another one. Go out and glorify money with your body. Do that. Live for that. Go out and glorify the little disappointing God of you with your body. Your passions. He says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, what do you do with your body? You live. Life is mission. So that when I say that life is mission, I mean both the eternal life that is yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and every single moment of every single day. 
that God in grace gives you and that he in grace has purchased with the life of his own son. And then by mission, I mean his mission. Kind of obvious, isn't it? But what is his mission? Well, that's what we're going to begin to unpack today. As we begin a study of the book of Acts, it's going to take us through most of this year, sort of like the book of John took us through most of last year. Acts is written by a guy named Luke, who also parenthetically wrote the book of Luke. Yeah, yeah. So he spent a lot of time on that title, I'm told. So, But he also wrote the book of Luke, and as what we're going to see is that he wrote it to the same guy, this guy whose name is Theophilus. We have no idea who he is or what his deal is. We know that his name means dear to God. That's amazing, isn't it? I like that name all of a sudden. Dear to God. Do you know what your name is? If you have faith in Christ, you're his beloved. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to them to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it'll be up on the screens for you. But please know that our heart is for you to have your scriptures in your hands. We want you to have a Bible. We make them available, by the way, at the Information Center uh, after the service, and the price is right. Just trust me on that one, okay? If you don't have any money and you can't pay for it, we'll give it to you. But use it. Learn to navigate it. Feast it and put it into your heart. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke says this. He says, in the first book, meaning that first book of Luke that I've already written, that I already put in Federal Express to you, O Theophilus, and I know you got it because I got the little receipt that you signed and the whole deal, and I followed it on the Internet. In that first book, O Theophilus of Luke, I have dealt with what? What is the book of Luke all about? All that Jesus, and then here's the key word for the day. It's the word began. All that Jesus began to do and began to teach. So then what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that whatever Jesus did during his earthly ministry, during his days on this planet, and whatever it is that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry, during his days on the planet, he's still doing. He's still teaching. It didn't come to an end with his death and burial and resurrection and ascension back up onto the throne of heaven, but instead he carries forward that work. He carries forward that teaching, and he carries forward that work and teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit through people who get that life is mission. Life is mission. So that begs the question of, okay, what did Jesus teach when he was here? And and what did Jesus do when he was here? Because whatever he did and taught, well, then seems like that's the mission, and it is. So what did Jesus do during his days on planet Earth that you and I, by the power of the Spirit, can continue today? Well, he fed the hungry. He gave drink to the thirsty. He championed the cause of the oppressed. He was the voice for the voiceless. He fought injustice of all kinds. You get the idea? That's what he did. In other words, Jesus didn't come to people whose lives were devastated in sin and merely, and I want to be careful with that, tell them how to be forgiven of their sin. Now, he clearly did tell them how to be forgiven of their sin, and we clearly need to tell people how to be forgiven of their sin, and we'll get to that in a minute. And We have plans to equip people to do that, all of us, this year. But he also addressed their sin-devastated lives. Guys, that is why last year, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he really did it. It was wondrous to see. We were able to purchase and then renovate and then open a place called the Rio House so that we could extend a hand of mercy, the hand of Christ, 
to precious women and their children who, because of the fallenness all around them and in this world, at least in this season of their life, you know what? They need a place to live. In the name of Jesus here. That's why for years, and we will continue this, we have put and invested our people and our resources, and our people are our greatest resource in causes like adoption and foster care and becoming a safe family and troubled teenage girls and all these kinds of things and promoted and developed strategic partnerships here in this community with ministries like Four Kids of South Florida and you know Taylor's Closet, which you'll hear about more next week. It's why we pour our people and resources into things like homelessness and and Hope South Florida, and the family and Sheridan House Family Ministries. It's why we seek to help girls who find themselves pregnant, unplanned pregnancies, and who say to the church and look at the church and think to themselves, good grief, you know, you people are telling me that I have a choice, but I'm on the street, I have no money, I have no insurance, I have no family that is willing to take me in, my boyfriend is out the door, and, and we seek to give them a choice. Hope Women's Centers, His Caring Place. It's why our own Dee Prieto founded Trees of Hope, which is housed next door in a little house that the church owns. We're so excited about what Dee's doing. We said, here, use this. We had the ability to do that. That's what the Spirit does. And that ministry exists to heal the wounds of sexual abuse and to equip families and communities to protect their children From it, Guys, Jesus began a work of mercy in his day that he continues to do today. And here's who he continues to do it through. By his spirit, through people who get that life is mission. And so Luke says that in the first book, that book of Luke that I sent you earlier, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus' keyword began to do and what else? And to teach. And what did he teach? He taught about the kingdom of God and how to become a citizen of the kingdom of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As we're going to see in a minute, the kingdom involves redemption and the forgiveness of sins, but it's it's even greater than that. It's, It's even bigger than that. It's even better than that. And he taught that right up, Luke tells us, until the day when he was taken up, meaning until the day that he physically left this planet and ascended into heaven from whence he came and resumed heaven's throne, but only after he had first, Luke says, given suggestions to his apostles. God doesn't give suggestions. Ever. God never comes and says, you know, I think it might. Really? Might? I think it would be a good idea if. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure that. That's how finite people think. That's how people who don't know absolutely everything and all at the same time think. That's how people who haven't declared the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end think. That's how those who do not control absolutely every molecule of the universe think. That's how I talk and think. That's how you talk and think. God doesn't need to think. God knows. So he never speaks contingently. And it would be unmerciful and ungraceful of him to do so, wouldn't it? God looks at the people that he so loves, that he so treasures, that he purchased us with the blood of his son... And he says, guys, in grace, I give you commands. 
Let me save you some time here. I've designed this universe not only physically according to laws and properties, but morally according to laws and properties. And here's what the laws and properties are. And you're like, oh, God wants to ruin my life and wreck my fun. No, God wants to save you. Freedom is not found outside of law. That's chaos, and it leads to bondage. Freedom is found inside of law. And God in grace has not hidden the laws of the universe from us. He comes and he gives us commandments. And that is the most loving thing that he can do. And so Luke writes that in the first book, O Theophilus, Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach right up until the day that he was taken up and ascended back into heaven, but only after he had first given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen and through their writings to all of us as well. And what are those commands? Well, in a nutshell, they are for you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to continue to do what Jesus began to do and to continue to teach what Jesus began to teach. That is to say, to get that life is mission and then to go out and live it for the glory of our risen Savior. Risen Savior. When does Jesus commission his disciples? After his life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's as the risen Lord that he approaches us, guys. It's as the risen Lord that he approaches them. Verse 3, Luke says that Jesus presented himself, what? Because it's another key word. It's a total game changer. Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples when after his suffering, meaning after his dying on a cross and being embalmed and lying in a tomb for three days dead. And he presented himself alive to his disciples after that by many proofs, appearing to them for a full 40 seconds. All right, a full 40 minutes, 40 hours. Man, you can have a strange 40 seconds, not going to lie. 40 minutes can be weird too. 40 hours even, maybe in college. But that's in the shredder right now. No, it's not. Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering and death and resurrection by many proofs, not by one, by a lot, appearing to them during 40 days. And apparently it was pretty convincing because these people, to a man and woman, sacrificed virtually everything and in many cases everything. They sacrificed relationships with their families and with these tight-knit little village communities that they lived in. They were excommunicated from their synagogues, meaning, and then also from their community. All of the people who had spoken into their lives and invested in them, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, neighbors, rejected them. This is not how to win friends and influence people. Rejected them, why? Because they preached a risen Christ and would not back off of that. It's not the way to wealth either. Nobody wanted to do business with these first century Christians. They were ostracized. They lost their reputations and became pariahs in their society. And many of them were tortured, suffered hardships and persecutions of all kinds. And most of these disciples, almost every one of them, 
died horrific deaths proclaiming a risen Jesus. Now, why in the world would they do that? Like, why would Peter be crucified upside down if he wasn't all in on a risen Jesus? Why would Paul lay his head down and say, you know what, just go ahead and cut it off if he wasn't all in on a risen Jesus? Why would Thomas go to India and be run through spears with spears if he was not all in on a risen Jesus? Please agree with me that these guys were at least convinced that they saw a risen Jesus. Because they unanimously, meaning not one of them said, you know what, you're about to cut my head off, and I think this is the threshold where I back out. I was good with losing my reputation and the business and all the, you know, suffering and all that stuff. Here's, here's where I, I have to confess to you that we made the whole thing up. Really? Not one backed off. They willingly ventured everything and gave everything to preach a risen Jesus and to write of his glory with their own blood. They saw a risen Christ. You know, it's interesting. People come to Christianity oftentimes with questions that I understand. Like, I understand why you would think this or why you would ask this. But they're the wrong questions. If I can just say it, and I guess I did. They are. You know, we come to Christianity and we want to know if it's relevant because it's a really old book. It's been around a long time. Is this relevant to my modern life, day, age, and so forth? Well, it will sound archaic at times. I will say that. It will bring to you a wisdom that seems old-fashioned, but how well is the wisdom that's newfangled working? So is it relevant? Is it inspiring? I want to be inspired. Is it comforting? I need to be comforted. Is it satisfying? Because as much as I've tried to satisfy myself with the waters of this world, it's like drinking salt water, if I'm just going to be honest, and it makes me thirstier and thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. Those are all good questions, but they're not the right question. The question is, is it true? Is it real? Because if it's real and if it's true, it is automatically out of the gate relevant. And if it's Christ we're speaking of, well, then it's comforting. In fact, his spirit is referred to as the comforter. It satisfies. It's rivers of living water, the metaphors of the Bible. It's inspiring. It has inspired person after person after person after person to do what these guys did, to sacrifice everything, knowing that they belong to one who has defeated not just sin, but death itself. So why fear? It's fulfilling in a way that our little plans for our little lives are not and cannot actually be. That's why his purchase of us is altogether wonderful. These guys were convinced of the reality of a risen Christ, and that was a game changer for them. They went from being a group of cowards huddled away in a room to rushing out, as we will study, out into the city that crucified Jesus, out into the temple that crucified Jesus, knowing that it would probably get them crucified, proclaiming a risen Jesus. They saw Jesus. For, as he says in verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples after his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, convincing them by many proofs. Here, touch my hands. Put your hand into my side. Look, I know we did this yesterday and the day before and the day before, but I think it's working. Do it again. Let me have a bite of that fish. I'm really not all that hungry, but I want to convince you of something. 
convincing them by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God, what the risen Jesus holds before them and holds before us is the vision of his kingdom, which is more than just the vision of a forgiven, redeemed people. It is the vision of a redeemed absolutely everything. It's the vision of a new heaven and of a new earth, of the new city that Matt talked about in his introduction, of a place where finally there is no more hunger and there is no more thirst. There are no more unmet needs. There's no more sorrow. There's no more war. There's no more conflict. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. There's no more suffering. There are no more tears as a result of suffering, but there are lots of tears of joy. There's no more divorce. There's no more poverty. There's no more separation. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There are no more of those things that every one of us, you know, as great as life can be in this life, and it can be really great, there's still like this list full of things where we would go, you know, it's really great, but this makes me long for something greater. Gone. And here's the really exciting part. The really exciting part is not just that that is our future if we belong to Christ, if we've been washed by his blood and purchased by his life, brought into his family. That is our future. That's exciting, really awesome. But here's what else is really exciting. The really exciting part is that we get to take our little lives in the here and now, in this broken world, and use them by the power of the Spirit to help move humanity toward that new city, that new world, that new place. And we do that as we do what Jesus did, as we teach what Jesus taught, or to put it differently, as we live our lives as missions. One of the things that you know I think that Christians are often guilty of, churches are often guilty of, is we spend most of our time looking back. We're looking back on the life, death, burial, and resurrection, and even ascension of Jesus... And we're glorying in the past, and we have great cause to glory in the past and to look back. But Jesus spends his last 40 days on earth calling these guys to look in which direction? Forward. Forward. And to wake up to the fact that life is mission. And every facet of it. One of the things that we're going to talk about a lot this year is marriage. We're going to roll out resources and all kinds of stuff and great plans and whatnot. Marriage is mission, and we need to understand that. It is mission critical. Marriage is mission critical to the people who are married. It is mission critical to the children that they're raising. It is mission critical to the world all around us, all around them, who look at us and our marriages and frankly don't see a big difference, but should There should be a difference for those of us who are humble enough to say, my life is Christ and his wisdom works. So I'm going to live that and experience the blessing of it. And not just the blessing of it, but the witness of it in this world. Parenting is mission critical. Do you know who you're raising as children? Just throwing it out there. You're raising little missionaries. You're like, really? Yeah. Do you know who you are, by the way? Just like if life is mission, just kind of catchy. You're a missionary. 
One of the things that we need to come to realize is that missionaries are not just people in some other part of the world that we write checks to and get letters from and emails from and then we get together and pray for them. They are those people and they have a specific mission and a calling to go to that part of the world and I would love it if God would call a lot of people out of this church to go to other parts of the world. Not that I'm trying to get rid of anybody, but I think it would be awesome to do that. And in fact, he's doing that with some young people and we hope to introduce you to sometime this year. But I'm a missionary right here in Fort Lauderdale. You're a missionary right here in Fort Lauderdale and anywhere else that God calls you to go. And you're raising little missionaries who need to see the wisdom of a biblical marriage, who need to see parents who get that life and every facet of it are mission, who are not materialists. Money is mission. Throwing that in there too. Gifts, talents, resources, Mission, our children need to see us sacrifice for the sake of something greater than ourselves and our plans. That's mission. And we need to do it for our own good as well. I was talking to a lady in between the services who's been diagnosed with cancer. And it occurred to me that suffering is mission. Suffering is mission. You're like, oh, really? Yeah, from the hand of God, it is a gift and an opportunity for you to take your life, which is less valuable than the kingdom, but is so valuable that he purchased it with the blood of his son and to suffer in faith before people who need to see people suffer with hope and joy. It's mission. Life is mission. But as we've been saying today, and as I said to her and she said to me, it's not a mission that we can do in our own strength. If we try that, we're going to fail. And Luke now makes that very explicit in verse 4 when he says this. He says that while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem because, you know, hey, he's given them a mission, right? So now they want to get out and go. He's like, no, 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 no. Wait, guys. You can't do this in your own strength. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he, Jesus, said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And He's the one who's going to give you the power and the wisdom and the guidance necessary to live this kind of life, to carry out the mission that God calls you to. And so then when they had come together, Luke says, with this promise of the Holy Spirit still ringing in their ears, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom where? To whom? Israel. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, because all morning so far, we've been saying that the mission is bigger than Israel. It's not limited to some little strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea that we call Palestine or Israel today. The mission is to the whole world, which is a little overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, it's like, good grief, go reach the world. (laughs) You know what? Start in your world. Start there. The mission of God starts in my world and it starts in your little world. It starts with the people with whom we work, live, and play, family and friends and classmates and people we work with and all of these other folks that God has already brought into our lives sovereignly and on purpose if we're on mission, get the idea, and and that he's already given us a genuine, real, and authentic love and relationship with. Well, they need to experience the mercies of Christ from your hand. They need to hear the gospel of Christ from your mouth. It starts there. But then what? What about all of us as a church, a faith family? What's our world? Well, for starters, it's this city. 
This city needs to experience the mercy and the message of Jesus coming through the people in this room. And then beyond this city, it's the world, which, again, a little overwhelming. So let me tell you what we're going to do. What we're doing instead is we're saying the same thing that we said when it came to local ministries. Instead of trying to figure out what God's plan was, we just said, all right, Lord, where are you already at work in our people? Oh, you know what? We've got a group of people really passionate about four kids of South Florida. You're already at work in our church for four kids of South Florida. We've got adoptive families and foster families. and all. Great! He's at work in our midst and four kids of South Florida. Let's go there. We're going to pour into that. Homelessness, same deal. Family, same deal. Same deal with the world. We've said, Lord, we know that you're calling us to the world. Where are you calling us so that we can develop some kind of a strategic partnership in a few places in the world that we can then pour our people, our most precious resources, and our dollars too, into taking the mercy and message of Jesus to those people. And this year, the strategic partnership that we're rolling out, and there will be five trip opportunities, is Haiti. And the organization is called Mission of Hope. And they are awesome. And I want to tell you in advance, we'll be rolling this stuff out later in the year, that not only will God use you to transform someone there, God will use them to transform you and the person you're married to and the children in your home. You'll come back different. So life is mission. And here's what we want to do together this year. We want to go on it. We want to go on it on our individual, in our individual worlds. We want to go on it in our city and we want to, to go on it in the world. So verse six, Luke says that when the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time? So they ask a time question, restore the kingdom to Israel. That's kind of a, a who and a where question all tied together. It's geographical in some sense. And he answers both. He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What you need to know is that your life is mission in your time and in your season. And that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, so in their homes, in their schools, in their offices, in their friendships, in their communities, in their relationships, in their city. But not just there, in all Judea and Samaria, so now it's expanding out from that city. And where else? To the end of the earth. And then Luke says that when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you just standing here? You've got your mission. Why do you stand looking into heaven, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, is going to send you his spirit, as we'll see in, in our study of this book. And you need to get out and do your mission. Because he's going to return to you in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And here's the deal. When he comes back, do you know what he's going to want to know? Pretty simple. Was your soul ever awakened to the fact that you've done and said things that may be totally cool in your culture, but not with God, and you can't undo and unsay them? But then also to the reality that God has made provision for you in Jesus. 
He offers you his perfect life for your imperfect life, his sufferings, death, burial, resurrection as the full payment, full for your sins, past, present, and future. He's done it all for you there. And if you have, then did you realize as well that you belong to him? He's purchased you and owns every moment of every day that he in grace gives to you in this life. And did you live it by the power of his spirit for him? Because here's the deal. Life is mission. And that is the great big transformational idea that we're praying and hoping will capture us as a faith family this year and mold us and shape us and convict us and inspire us and motivate us and change us and make us more like Jesus by the end of this year than we are today. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. God, we thank you that you look upon us in mercy and have provided a means by which all can be made right with you. God, awaken our hearts to the reality of your gospel, to the provision of your salvation. Make us alive, Lord, we pray, to all that you're giving to us in Jesus. And make us alive also that we might joyfully give him our lives. Lord, give us the wisdom and the power by your Spirit to surrender our all to him, bit by bit, piece by piece, day by day, that we might come to know the joy and the meaning and the purpose and the pleasure of living these lives that you've given us for you and for your mission. Lord, life is mission. That is a wonderful thing. Capture us with that this year and bring glory to yourself through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.